Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution, not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those two, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today. And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I found, and I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. 
Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. Values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. Welcome to April. And today and over the next few months, I'm sharing a mini series here on the podcast for us to delve more deeply into internal family systems or IFS which, as many of you know, has become a core part of my work over the past couple of years and a core part of my own healing journey for about the past decade. So if you're not sure what IFS is, stay tuned. You will learn more about it in today's conversation. And our particular focus today, I know, will be of interest to pretty much everyone, regardless of whether or not you know about IFS, because we are exploring a few states of being that I know can play big roles in all of our lives in varying degrees. And these states of being include shame, anxiety, and depression. So these are big ones. I've certainly struggled with all of these at times. And the way that IFS approaches them just feels so relevant and helpful. To lead us into this conversation, I'm inviting a lead trainer from the IFS community, and I've enjoyed assisting her training at one of her trainings um, last year, and we're inviting Rena Dubin. So Rena is an IFS solo lead trainer and a licensed psychologist practicing in Newton, Massachusetts. She provides psychotherapy to individuals and couples and offers consultation for individuals, dyads, and small groups. She also offers workshops to larger groups on various topics, which always include an experiential focus. IFS has been foundational for Rena since her immersion in 2004, and she's found it to be the deepest and most profound approach for healing and expansion and highly values how this work is an approach to living and not just a model. So more recently, a focus of Rena's work has been to expand not only how up-close systems like our families and our schools impact our parts, but also how the larger systems through which we all navigate impact our parts and our different identities. This feels much more complete and ties to her legacy heirloom of Make the World Better. Our conversation offers an overview of IFS, an explanation of the things that we both value, Rena and I both value about this approach to healing and living, a discussion about leadership, and a deeper dive into shame, anxiety, and depression through an IFS lens, a guided experiential so that you can get to know your inner world more intimately, and more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rena Dubin. Okay, welcome, Rena. Good to see you. Good to see you too. It's good to have you. And we always start our conversations here with both a personal and a parts check-in. 
So if you're open to it, I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us in the world and just any parts that you want to name that you're bringing into the space with you today. Sure. So I'm outside of Boston, just west of Boston and Newton. And um, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I you know, I'm a little bit anxious, like, oh, where's it going to go? And is it going to be useful? And all that. But that's what I'm aware of. And also nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. So most listeners will be familiar with IFS or internal family systems. However, there'll likely be some who are not familiar. And so I'm wondering if you could describe what IFS is to someone who's never heard of it before and who's just encountering it here with us today for the first time. Yeah, it's not an easy elevator speech, is it? It's not. <laughs> yeah, so I so I've been a therapist for a long time, and this has just been a great um, uh, opening for I think a deeper level of healing because uh, it doesn't pathologize the behaviors that we get into that are often coping strategies to manage something, and. Um, and those behaviors often can upset other parts of either our systems or other people because, you know, we're all trying to manage uh, the challenges that come to us and certainly little ones don't do it with a whole brain on board and are just trying to find out what, what do I need to do to get my needs met. But those strategies become, you know, sort of entrenched and, and automatic and so often when we have more resources on board, we're still using those strategies because we're not that aware of it. So this is a way of getting to know more what's happening in our system and what's being done to try to help us both get our needs met and also to keep things safe that need to be safe. So it's a very respectful and um, collaborative model and uh, really actually becomes a way, I, I actually don't like the word model, it really becomes a way of living because we we begin to get more familiar with what's the reactions we're having and beginning to get curious about them. Cause it means um, something's gotten tweaked inside. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's a way of way of living. And I guess we'll, we'll talk more about how that is as we, as we go, but I just wanted to name that I first met you at the end of 2021, I was assisting a level one training that you led so now you're leading IFS trainings, and I'm wondering if you could share with us what your journey with IFS has been like. Like, how did you first learn about it? And, and I'm thinking that you, you were a therapist before you discovered it. And oh, yeah. what has led you to become, you know, to kind of move up to be a, a trainer now? Yeah, those are good questions. So I, so living in Boston, uh, which is an area that often overtrains, you know, everybody, whatever, you know, that's just the way it is. So I had uh, become trained in EMDR in the late 90s. And um, and I liked EMDR and I respect it, but I never fell in love with it. And um, but because of being in that community, there were there were a lot of therapies that kind of I this is my view became what I call the 21st century trainings, because much more was known about the brain and more was known about mindfulness and mind body, you know, all of that was sort of percolating. Um, and I think some of the impact of the women's movement in terms of relationship. So um, 
So to me, the field, field made huge spurts into these, these models that really began to take hold in the late 90s and beginning of the 21st century. So, so I have some friends. So the Cape Cod does uh, an institute every year that different people come and speak about all kinds of things. And Dick Schwartz, who created IFS or had IFS pass through him, depending on how it gets def defined, leads uh, a, a week there every summer. And a, uh, some women I knew, one, one in particular was saying, I'm going to rent a house on the Cape and people can buy shares. And so that was my first introduction to IFS. And I, actually, I'd seen a workshop before that that Mike Elkin did. Um, we had a local trauma dissociation community, but I couldn't quite get what it was, actually. So I went to this week, which uh, the Cape Cod Institute is nice in that it has you in school in the morning and then often playing in the afternoon and you're on the Cape. And we kind of fell in love with the work and with each other. And, and I did it partly feeling like um, I'm going to do this so I don't have to do level one. And actually, as the women were getting to know each other, we all had an exit strategy because, you know, I didn't live that far away. I could go home if I wanted to. And of course, nobody did. So. Um, and so it turned out, although I was intrigued, I certainly didn't have the model. And then the following summer, um, Dick was doing a week at Kripalu, which is a yoga retreat center in Western Mass. And a few of us went and it was again, it was, oh, I'm going to do that. And then I'll, I'll get the model. And it was after that, I jumped into a level one. And at that point, level ones were six, three day weekends and over generally, you know, 10 months or a year. And I would find myself starting to get it and then sliding out of it. So then when the training ended, it was, what am I going to do now? So I decided to become a program assistant who are really sort of the front engines, as you know, of the training. And um, I kept doing it because I was growing and, um, and that eventually led me to be considered for becoming an assistant trainer. And it kind of went on for there. I had lots of parts who did not see me up front. Um, so that was another whole thing. Hard journey. to imagine. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. are such a natural leader and teacher of it. Well, thank you. But my parts didn't quite see that, although I come from teachers. So it it did start to make sense over time that I was coming back to something that was sort of foundational in me, as well as um, this isn't true for everybody in IFS, but I, I feel like these are wonderful skills to be bringing out to the world around how to deal with polarized situations and have openness to um, different points of view and all of that. And I come from a family that does have a fair amount of activism in it. So I began eventually to catch on, oh, this is also my way of, you know, doing good in the world. So, um, so it's, you know, it's become a huge part of my life as a result and balance is not a key word. So. Yes. Yeah. That's great to draw that parallel with activism and your family your family roots and just how, how you're spending most of your time and energy now. What initially led you to want to become a therapist in the first place? Um, I always thought I would be a teacher. My father was a, um, my father was my better and worst parent. And he was a, he'd, he'd come uh, first from, let's see, from being a teacher and then moved into special ed and eventually became a psychologist. And um, I thought I'd be a teacher, and then it's somewhere along the way that shifted fairly like in college or right after that I wanted to go into this field. So, and now I've come back to teacher. So, right. 
Yeah, there's always a nice, nice combination. Yeah, there's always some teaching. And, you know, I think I think therapy in general has some roots in medical model and some roots in education and some in spiritual, you know, there are many other doorways in, um, but teacher's certainly one of them, so. So let's talk about that teaching and leadership role that you're in now. And like I said, I really valued the leadership that you modeled and that you brought to the training that I assisted with you. Just I valued it on a number of levels. And I think it's rare to experience that kind of leadership. And what I experienced from you was a really... Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to say this in a way that's going to make sense, but it's like it was like self leadership, but not a, not as a concept, but as it was as it is expressed through you. And there was there was what just what you're talking about, like listening and holding space for all different kinds of perspectives, all different kinds of parts, both within the students and the assistants, and it seemed also within yourself. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how, how you approach leadership when, when you step into those trainings and hold space for not only the students, but also the staff. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that I thought about it in an organized way. I, um, I, I've tended to watch how people teach in a, not always in a deliberate way. I had a point in college when I was choosing classes by who I thought was interesting to learn from more than what the content was. Um, and in the IFS world, I've, I actually had, I've had, um, I haven't had trainers that I, I didn't think had some skills and all of that, but I've had some that I liked how they brought leadership and some that I didn't. And um, which would mainly mean not, not having as much awareness of impact, not being open to feedback, those kinds of things, or, um, so, you know, so I, so I learned from watching and I've had some very strong mentors along the way. Um, I think, um, the strongest one has been Ann Cinco, but there've been certainly, I, I did a lot of work, a lot of retreats with Dick and, um, I don't see Dick so much as a teacher, but he embodies the work and he knows how to bring people into it. And that's, and that's a whole other bunch of skills. So some combination of, of all of that, and I'd, I'd mentioned, uh, Mike wasn't a formal mentor because, but he's, you know, he's, uh, he brings a lot. And so I spent many years with him as well. So I've, you know, I've just had some strong uh, models, I would say in different ways. And then I think about it also through a, a lens around identity. And I, I value a lot of what I see as, I suppose female centered. I, you know, I'm told, and I think it's true. I have some male energy as well. I think my father has two daughters, and I think he actually wanted a son, and maybe in certain ways I am. I don't know. But um, so it's something about being able to to take responsibility and be the bottom line at the same time as um, being present and attuned and hearing. Yeah, I think I think some level of masculine energy or whatever you want to call it, if it's young energy or masculine energy, but it is needed to, in leadership and coupled with that feminine energy like you're talking about. And yeah, as you're naming just modeling leadership and being open to hearing impact from people, being open to receive feedback, 
I think that that was one of the things that really uh, touched me the most. And just to have a model doing that, because I haven't had that with anyone that I've studied with before. And I've started to bring that more into my own teaching. And it's, it's been really powerful, both for me and for the women that I'm working with. So, and so you name that it's mostly been things that you've seen other people modeling that, that you have been inspired by. Are there other, other things in particular that, that you've observed over the years that, that you have wanted to bring into your own leadership? Well, so, you know, it, it became um, increasingly apparent that IFS was, as many organizations have been, very white-centered, not only in terms of who was uh, in leadership, but in terms of uh, the, the ways things were taught and the assumptions that were made, you know, what was embedded in it. Not that I think that's IFS, but that was its translation often. And, um, and then as uh, there's been a more um, noise being, good noise being made around, or good trouble is, John Lewis would call it, more noise being made around what isn't working or where there is implicit bias and all of that, the trainings got more bumpy because um, we really we really weren't in any formal way prepared for all of that. And, and I was out of step in that way as well. I, I think for me, what I came to after getting sort of shaken up in different ways um, was it did bring me back to things that were in some ways with me because of how I'd grown up. Um, it doesn't mean, I, I don't think I had nearly enough awareness of my whiteness and my privilege and all of that, but I had, I had been grown, grown up with a lot of systemic understanding about uh, how, you know, the kind of role class plays and what that means by class also extends to race often and, and the women's movement and all of that. So that piece about, you know, how do we stay open and also create more, um, more engagement in different ways. And what I found is if I can do that well, the kind of, the kind of um, collaboration that happens makes things much richer and much safer for the participants as well. So, uh, which doesn't mean it's perfect and it doesn't mean everybody has the ideal experience that I'd want them to have, but it means we get closer to it. Yeah, so that's been a real recent push, you know, in the last few years. Yeah, and that was something that, that you modeled really well um, in that training too. And also something about, I wanted to, I want to speak to, when I wasn't originally planning on talking about this, but it's coming up right now as we're here together, just the power of doing IFS in a group. Yeah, true. And what, what's possible in that. And I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, IFS is very powerful one-on-one and it's also incredibly powerful when we do it in community as a group with other people. Can you speak to what you notice about uh, yeah. the similarities and the differences and of that? I don't know if I'll be speaking to exactly that, but you can always ask another question. Okay. <laughs> but what I think what what I think is true for most of us is a lot of the ways we get hurt are certainly in relationship, but it's also in groups, whether it's family or classrooms or schoolyards or um, you know how we're received in our communities. Um, even before we get to identity stuff. And so to your point, when that can be worked on or, or, or something gets creative where there's a possibility for a different way to be in a group or a different way to work through woundings or ruptures, 
um, that is a huge power. You're right. That uh, I don't want to say transcends because it's different for different people, but has that possibility. And, you know, you know, from the work and as I'm aware, as you're saying, some people won't have IFS on board, but part of what happens in the work is a, what's called an unburdening process, meaning as things get healed, um, the process for being able to let go of things that no longer have to be carried. And there's, there's been actually some movement toward group unburdenings. Let's say that whether it's around, um, around racism or about patriarchy or about, uh, you know, things have been constraining us and there are all kinds of things that have been, can be constraints. So that is powerful. That is powerful in a group. Yeah. And anybody who's ever been to a big rock concert or, you know, something like that has a sense of in a different way of that kind of power about being part of something much bigger than we are. Maybe certain religious practices too, right? Yeah, and also just that trust that the community is held in a certain way and the orientation in IFS is is, is to hold self-energy or to for those who aren't familiar with IFS, self-energy is like just resting in your highest self or your core self, your essential self. And not, you know, even if you have judgmental parts or parts that disagree with someone else's saying, your primary orientation is to come back to that that self and that creates just a feeling of a lot of safety and permission that it's okay to to bring whatever to speak for any parts that are here and that's that's very uncommon there's there's not many communities where where really all parts of us are welcomed and for me that's been really healing and also just being in being an assistant in your training in our in our staff meetings, just being able to to speak for any any part that was coming up for me and having that be okay, having that be heard and acknowledged. Yeah, uh, and I also want to add though, I don't I don't remember our staff all together, but I, I I know we were mostly or all white, and were one of us not or two of us or whatever, then we would have had less of that experience, right? So there's the the challenge about not only having broader identities on staff, but it is, again, it isn't just the number of bodies. It's also the, uh, you know, really, really having some way to bring in what are the riches of these other, these other places of navigating in the world. So you would have had an easier time, ideally, uh, not ideally meaning ideal for everybody, or likely you had an easier time because the, uh, the staff you were coming into was a little more like who you are. And it can become that much more challenging if um, non-binary or I'm trans or I'm uh, I'm black or I'm, you know, any number of other identities that uh, haven't had the same kind of seats at the table. And still, even with that, it's like just what it's all held with still gives us all a baseline to relate to each other from. It is, and how we how we help that if, if that can get delivered in a way that feels real and trusted, yeah. which also means it has to be tested. And I don't mean in a deliberate way, but you know, a bump has to happen. Right, some way that I actually do feel you listen. You know, I'm a I'm a participant, or I'm on staff for the first time. That you and others were making some room to listen, and if you and if somebody wasn't, um, that we could we could you know, bring some curiosity to that and see what was blocking, then there starts to be more buy-in. Yeah. 
And there's been a lot of change in the organization just to say that so that who's who's coming up into trainings um, is is becoming much, much broader than it was. And uh, many more people of color, many more people in different uh, intersections of identity and all of that. And it's, you know, it, 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 it makes it more complicated, but it makes it more real. For sure. Yes. And I know that you, the, I see you leading a um, level two training coming up this summer and it's on shame, anxiety, and depression through an IFS lens. And I'm wondering if we can just take some time to speak about these things from, from the IFS perspective, because they are such parts of being a human being. And I know women who are listening are really going to resonate with these things and want to, want to hear more about them. So how about we start with, with anxiety and can you speak to anxiety a bit from an IFS perspective? Yeah. And first I want to say I'm co-leading with Tamala Floyd, who's our first black trainer, which, um, and is also, you know, quite a, uh, quite a solid and, and, uh, it just brings a lot of resources. So I'm really looking forward to, I know her a little bit, but I'm really looking forward to sharing that. Um, so words like anxiety um, in particular, maybe depression and shame, yeah, probably too, can either be um, signs of some things that are vulnerable in us, but it also can be signs of that they're playing a protective function. So for example, anxiety, if we get to know it, could say, well, if I keep you anxious, you won't get out there and do things that'll get you hurt. Right. So so some of what we're learning in IFS is what function are these things playing? Because, we, you know, we're, we're learning about how things get enrolled as a way of, you know, you know, our, there's more work also that's been done on this polyvagal theory and this nerve that scans for safety, which uh, is a main function of our nervous system is to scan for safety. So. Anxiety can be a protector that's saying, nope, don't do that. I'm going to keep you, you know, I won't let you sleep or I'll keep you too anxious to get out and speak in front of people or, you know, something like that, right? So it has a protective function. Or it may be connected to fear. I think fear in some ways is a less clinical word. The fear that's being carried because of things that have happened and haven't healed. You know, we could call it um, wounds or trauma or some PTSD that hasn't healed. And so the, the nervous system is set around all of that. And so when someone, when someone experiences a lot of anxiety or a lot of fear, what, what are the first steps for working with that? Well, first, we are also holding, as, as you know, that whatever those things are, aren't all of us because we can get defined as that anxious person rather than it's not all of who somebody is. It's, it's something that is traveling in their system. And sometimes even hearing that helps people to, um, you know, to feel more seen or less labeled or pathologized. Right. So if somebody's coming in with that, um, we're, we're really just interested in getting to know 
that aspect of someone and what role it's playing. And then depending on whether it's playing a protective function or it's actually some, some fear that's being carried, we go, you know, then we, they would be down two different paths. One, one path would be if it's protective, getting to know how it learned this and what its worries were. And then either making an agreement to heal who it's protecting or to help it know there are other resources on board because also often these parts get stuck in time and they're younger and they, you know, they really aren't in that way and fuller awareness of who the person is. And that can sound like it's an easy process and sometimes it is, but often it's, it, it you know, it's, uh, it's a piece of work. Yeah. And how about depression? Well, you know, even before I had IFS, I under my belt, um, I was always, I'm always curious about these catch-all words. Um, I think because I've, you know, I have some parts where a little, I don't don't want to be run by medical model in this field, um, meaning sick well and you know it, it, uh, that kind of thing. So I would always ask people, what do you mean by depression? And um, you know, sometimes would hear, you know, can't get out of bed and and no pleasure in life and all of that. And sometimes I'd hear things that sound like sounded like grief. Or sometimes it might have been um, there was a lot of anger that was kind of shut down. So this is that process of beginning to know, first of all, what's meant. And then there are different ways, I think, to um Again, see what function it's playing. Is it is it again that I, and am I carrying other people's? You know, we carry energy that comes from how we we carry certainly energy from our direct experience, but also from some legacy legacy things that have happened. You know, families who've had a lot of loss or a lot of persecution, and so the more we know about what's driving it, the more we can begin to direct attention to how to begin to be with and free up. Often depression can be, I think, parts who've been too alone um, and had to navigate too much. And when we do that, when it starts that way, it often leaves a feeling of overwhelm or there's no one here to help me. I'm on my own. Um, and so we develop some core, core beliefs, really, about how we see ourselves. I can't expect help. And that we can see how that could lead to somebody having some pretty heavy energy, right? And then the third piece of this, shame. Well, I, you know, shame is um, a pretty profound one because I, I think we all carry little bits or lots of it. And my sense is shame is almost always a relational experience. You know, I, you know, children, one thing about watching little children play, if they're at all in a reasonable environment, is they don't have a lot of, they don't make a lot of judgment about their drawing or their sandcastle. And so if it falls down, they can laugh. And then, um, but it doesn't take too long before, you know, as we're getting socialized and we're in groups, to your point, where we can start comparing or being told that wasn't good enough in some way, or, you know, so we're starting to take on beliefs that um, often we think mean something about us. And so shame again can be a protector. Because if we have shame, we often have an internal shamer. We'll hear inside, that was stupid. What's wrong with you? Why did you do that? And of course, often if we have that, we probably had some version of that being said to us 
or a certain kind of neglect that we read that way of I don't, I'm not worth it. And so um, again, likewise, shame can be a protector and it also can be just a, you know, a sign of uh, unworthiness and all of that. And so uh, as uh, I mentioned, Mike Elkin, he would say his definition, I think he would, he would say where he got it from too, but um, is it's it's the unbearable feeling of our badness being witnessed by others. We believe that, and then other people are seeing that. And I think one of the archetypes of that is that middle school age where we see a group of girls talking and assume they're talking about me, and maybe they are. And there's a lot of that that urge to fit in and all of that, right? So how what a painful experience that can be and again goes back to your point about groups and left out right belonging is there a short meditation that you could lead us through a parts meditation to help us connect with one of these either shame within us or aspects of depression or anxiety well i'm not sure if i'd want people to do that but tell me a little more just some some sort of an exercise just to help listeners start to connect with their own parts, just to get a sense of taking, taking what we're saying and relating it to their own inner experience. Well, I can think, you know, we did this because one of the one of the things we teach in level one is how to work with polarization. So I could ask people to take a moment and I would have us slow down a little bit if that felt okay. And just maybe to begin to focus on breath. and body, and maybe to have something nearby if it's wanted to write with. And I would ask us maybe to think for a moment about something we don't like about ourselves. Is there something we don't like in our bodies about how we look? So just in noticing that, we probably can notice we have different reactions to that. You know, we may have parts who don't like that we have those feelings. If there's something we don't like, like I don't like my parts who keep me up late at night. There's a me who keeps me up late at night. And there's a me who doesn't like it. So we're beginning to have a sense of some of the conversations that we hear inside. And maybe just taking some time for those who this is a new experience or bringing in awareness, something that's sort of been there in that way that, you know, that's just sort of underground. And if it feels right, people can begin to make a map which is another way of kind of learning more about who we are. So I'm not sure this is quite going where you hope, Sarah, so I want to check in with you, but I think it's a way of beginning to get a sense that we're, our brains are meaning-making and we're, we're having these internal 
judgments or notices or tightnesses that are different ways our systems are expressing. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and really practical, really relatable. Okay. So we're all having those inner conversations and we're not always aware of that, that it's this different parts or different aspects of us. Yeah, so maybe just giving some time, especially for those who this is newer, to just, you know, maybe hold what this was like and if they are... If they had a chance to do more with it, you know, what would that be like? If something come up that came up that was unexpected, you know, it'd be okay to, to let you know or something like that. Uh, but again, it's a beginning to walk in to what's going on anyway inside. But just again, it's like it starts to come up into awareness a little bit more. And Rena, are there certain practices or ways that you connect with your parts regularly? Um, yeah, I don't know that I have a regular practice except that, you know, sitting in my seat when I'm doing this work with others and then being in trainings, there's just constant, you know, if we're paying attention, there's constant stuff we notice. Like I notice when... Uh, something feels unfinished or I had an interaction that left me activated in some way. Um, I didn't feel understood or um, uh, I don't like the way something was done, you know, and I'm having reactions to it. So there's opportunities all the time in that. Um, get me involved with customer service and you'll see, you'll see a whole bunch of. Here. Right. So, uh, so, you know, if, so I have, I do have some ongoing notice because that, you know, it's what I do so much of the time. Um, and if anything, sometimes it's good for me to have a kickback, you know, where I can, I can sort of turn that off a little bit. Um, and I, and mostly I like it. So I don't, I don't, I just find that interesting about myself and about others. So I think it's a, a noticing in that way. I'm not, I'm not someone who's generally sitting for a while and meditating except in a training because we often do that as a way of helping people arrive or, digest something, um, making space is a really useful thing and our culture doesn't allow a lot of that. And I think in, um, you know, being an older person, what I notice is what's happening with attention spans as we're all on our, our devices and um, everything's fast, right? Even just slowing down feels, you know, somehow like a, a revolutionary thing to do sometimes. The biggest questions I get from my students and clients is they're wondering the best way for them to connect with their parts in between meetings or just ongoingly. And um, I know how I answer this, but I'm curious how how you would answer that for people. Well, I think, again, it varies a lot because some of us are very visual and some of us are much more kinesthetic. Um, so I would I would want to learn what works for people. 
And I also think for some people, because of that, again, uh, growing up too alone or not feeling connected enough, sometimes it doesn't come easily for people until we're in connection. And so I would want to learn more about people's experience of connecting with things outside versus it doesn't go very well for me. It happens more when I'm with you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's similar to what I, what I share is just fi- finding the right path for each person. Cause it's, it can be so different. Yeah. And then, and then how people resource is different. I mean, there's some who are very connected to nature. So, you know, being quiet in the woods might feel really spacious, but for somebody else that might feel scary or not inviting. Right. So um, but somebody may be cooking and having that experience or singing or or in connection, having some tea with somebody. So I, I would just um, try to learn more about what, I guess these are things about how do we settle or how do we digest or how do we come back into some alignment um, and what happens alone, what happens in relationship. Yeah. And Rina, what is your current growing edge? Um, oh, there probably is more than one. Or edges, <laughs> whatever, whatever you, whatever you feel called to share. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think there's some activation in my nervous system that can happen fairly easily around. Um, so I did come to realize some time back that I. Yeah, I've had a concern around losing people and especially what feels like rupture. And at one point, my therapist said, you know, do you think some of that is legacy burden? And I realized I have four immigrant grandparents. Um, so it was sort of like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't all mine. So I, so I, that was already freeing just to know that. But I also do carry some that I think come from my own um, learned insecurities or of uh, um not fitting in or not being good enough and all of that. So that still needs some work and needs some love and some healing. And then, um, you know, I think being kinder to myself, it's easier often with others. My critics are much less harsh than they used to be. I mean, that's, that's something most of us, when you ask about parts, most of us can relate to having an inner critic, right? could be a shamer, but it could just be a perfectionist or a standard bearer, right? Um, so I think those, those, well, it's not, I think those have softened a lot. And um, and then I think a growing edge also is around what's, you know, what's the right balance as I'm moving into being older. I'm aware of that, actually, some about more vulnerability or more, you know, uh, you know, sense that there's less quality time, maybe. So those are some growing edges, I think, too. And are there certain things on the horizon that you feel like excited about or that you're building towards? Well, most of it's in the IFS world. Uh, well, I would feel excited about some travel when I can figure that out better because, you know, I think um, the world is somewhat more opened up than it was. And uh, that kind of adventure would be fun. So there's that. I don't quite have a frame for that yet. Um, and then there's some, uh, I'm going to be playing more of a role in some of the PA development stuff and doing some with the, the program assistance, uh, some help in preparing them because you know that preparation is really by the seat of your pants. 
Um, and again, it's such a crucial role. So that that's going to be starting up. And um, you know, I think the rest is just sort of you know honing things more. You know, how can I deliver it better? How can I add more um, into that piece of work? I'm moving from uh, doing less clinical work and more in consultation and training, and that that so that's already in process, and that feels good and right. And at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how IFS is not just a model. It's really a way of life. And for those who are listening, whether they're familiar with IFS or this is the first time they've heard about it, what can you say about bringing some of this forward from our conversation just as a way of life? Well, what I can say for me and encourage in others is to get curious when we're having strong reactions, not because they're bad or we shouldn't have them, but because usually it means, you know, I'm upset about something out there and there's a lot to be upset about. There's a lot that's wrong, uh, no matter what our dominant beliefs are, but also to get curious about what's getting activated in me, because often we'll find it's a place that's, that's tender. It's a place that's been wounded. And if it gets some attention, there still will be things wrong out there that need attention, but I'll be able to do it um, with less pain or less, um, less reactivity about it. So it's, you know, it's a practice that you know that we talk about, which uh, let's say in relationship where we're working to speak for what's happening in us and to us and not as much from it. Meaning, let's say you did something and I got really, really angry, and then I came at you with that, um, we could imagine that might not go well for you, and you'd be less open to hearing me. And it's not, you know, I think anger is actually a wonderful piece of information, but how it gets used can matter, which is different than I, I started to notice I was having this big reaction, and I spent some time with it, and then I could say, you know, Sarah, I noticed I got really, I had a big reaction before, and I've taken some time with it. Can I tell you about it? So I'm actually telling you a little more about me than giving you feedback about the terrible thing you did that pissed me off. All right, so it's a very different way of um, communicating at our best. And because we're human and we're not perfect and won't be, some of those conversations are... Uh, more difficult than others, but being able to get better at it is a good thing with the people we love, with the people we work with, right? Yeah. And is there any anything else that you'd like to share? Well, I'm interested in what drew you to want to create this vehicle, not just with me, but in general, that uh, what's driving that for you? To create this podcast? And the ones in general, because this is one of many, right? Yeah, um, as an avenue of expression and connecting with people that I'm interested in talking with and sharing things that I'm interested in, the wider audience. And I, I love audio. I love listening to podcasts. Even before they became a big thing, I started this like eight years ago. And it's just, I think it's a great way to, to learn and just to feel um, to feel a connection in times of solitude. It sounds like a great example of create what you want. Yeah. 
you wanted conversations with people and you w- wanted to do that in a way that you thought they would be useful. Otherwise. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. And if anyone wants to connect with you more, are there any ways to do that that you would recommend? Probably the best way is my email because I, you know, I don't really have a website and um, yeah, probably my email. So I can make that known if that was useful. Sure. If you want people to know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that, that means I'll get one or two or I'll get a blast, but we'll see. So uh, my email is R-I-N-A-D-U-B-I-N, that's my name, at M-E.com. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate, I appreciate you and I appreciate our connection. Thank you. And thank you for the feedback you were giving me today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.